You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Nick Natu, who is using Django and Python to create a password manager for families. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, happy to have you on. Nice name, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> likewise, right? <laughs> so do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your site? Sure. Um, my name is Nick Natu. I've been um, programming for, man, almost 20 years now. That makes me feel pretty old. Um, but I've been using Python for, for quite some time, probably about 15 years of that, and Django for, oh, in and out for... I mean, it's going to sound like a long time, like 10 years, but I've really just been touching it like here and there over the years. Um, but I uh, decided to use it for the project that I'm working on now, which, um, as you mentioned, was password space. And um, we're really focusing on a password manager for just that's like super easy to use, right? So a lot of the things that I was kind of going through when I was thinking about designing this was like, helping my partner like figure out how to store her passwords and you know helping friends who don't know anything about you know password managers or passwords and thinking about like that and using sort of the other password managers that exist out there i was just like man these are like not super intuitive and so our focus with, with password space is to just really make a clean and super intuitive sort of interface um and just make password management like dirt simple right so if you don't know anything about passwords don't know anything about encryption or hashing like you don't need to right and it's sort of the, the app will just take care of everything for you right so is this something then where people would be inserting their passwords directly through your site or is it some type of like browser extension um so it'll work similarly to the way that the a lot of the password managers work now so it'll be browser extension there will also be an app that will you know interface with the apps on your phone or whatever mobile device you're using but what i also want to do is um almost make it so that you can use the app like um, a Rolodex almost, right? Where you have sort of all of your listings there and, um, you know, in an easy to sort of digest format or an easy to just interface so that it's just like, oh, I'm going to click here and I'm just going to go to my website and that's going to be the end of it. Yeah, because I'm just thinking like little Bobby Tables, like he's probably not using a good password, you know? So exactly. if you can somehow get him to use a strong password, that is good. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how many times, how many people have told me that's a, you know, it's a classic story of, I have three passwords that I change slightly. <laughs> it's actually one password that I just changed slightly three different times and use it at all the different websites. I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> right. No, I love it. When my dad asks me like to set up an account for him on some site, he's like, well, why don't you just do this? Why don't you just do like Q-W-E-R-T? Like no one would ever guess that. Like it's a pattern. I can just go right across the keys. <laughs> I mean, and then and then it never gets changed, right? Because people have no idea how they don't even think about it after that. Once it's in, then it's like the browser stores it, and everything's fine. <laughs> right. So this site, though, this is something that you've developed solo now this whole time. Um, so I, I come up with the idea, and I, I was talking with a friend of mine, and so it's two of us working on it as we've been sort of um, collaborating and discussing like how the site should work and, and everything. Um, but yeah, it's just probably been the two of us. Okay. And then as for how long it's been up and running for in production, or I guess even specifically, like how long did you develop it for before it even got up and running in production? Yeah, so um, basically we started at the beginning of the year through planning. Um, probably didn't start coding until February-ish. Um, and we're actually still in development now. Um, we have we have a development server working 
and running now, but um, it, we are not live yet, so we're not quite in production. Um, but we are we're we're pretty close at this point. Okay. So do you think? Uh, I know we kind of mentioned this off call for a second. Uh, you're planning to release this what sometime in like the end of summer 2020, like somewhere around there. Yeah, ho- hoping hoping um, sometime August ish is like our our time frame to kind of get the thing out. We're we're pretty confident we can we can meet that timeline. We're pretty close at this point, but um, with you know all of the happenings in the world right now, we've uh, things kind of get slowed down for us a little bit. But yeah, so I think, I think August will be will be ready. Right. Yeah. Nothing like uh, pandemics and and writing to prevent you from coding the app of your dreams. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's it's pretty crazy. Like nothing is like you know directly impacted. I mean, aside from I guess the, the pandemic um, has has impacted me directly, but. You know, just trying to stay engaged and involved with stuff. Like it feels like an important time to kind of do that. So, um, so yeah, the app sort of took took a sideline to some things. So, unfortunately, I didn't have a ton of time to dedicate to it in the last month or so. Right. So earlier on, you know, you mentioned you've been using Python for quite some time now. Uh, was that the main motivation to use Django, or did you kind of look at some other stuff possibly to use, but then realize that hey, Django actually has a lot of tools that I like? Um. Yeah. I mean, like back in like the early days of Django, um, I mean, it definitely was, learning Python was definitely the, the sort of gateway language, right, that got me into Django. Um, and like I said, I've been kind of poking at it because I really like the idea of it. Back then, like frameworks weren't as sort of prevalent as they are now. I mean, certainly not, not nearly as much as they are now. Um, there was like a couple of, of or PHP things that you could do. Um, back then, it was still like, you know, Perl form processing, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and then there's like this Django thing that kind of came out and I'm learning Python at the same time. I'm like, oh, this thing's really cool. But I've never really had like a, a purpose like to use it, right? Like in my early 20s, I was, I was just kind of poking around with things and just kind of learning the platform and then, you know, then stop and go do something else and then kind of come back to it a couple of years later and see all the crazy improvements um, and just be like, oh my God, I have to relearn this thing all over again. Um, that happened like, you know, two or three times uh, over the course of the years. And then, um, as I was thinking about sort of this app today or this app that I was working on now, um, I, I initially was just like, oh, I'll use Django and that will be that. Um, but then I was like, well, let me go and kind of poke around and see what else is out there. And yeah, much to the way you described, um, I, I figured like, well, honestly, like I, I know Python really well and I have a pretty good, you know, understanding of how the Django system works. So it just sort of made sense to kind of stick with it um, in terms of, like all of the performance pieces and and all of that, like um, everything, everything just kind of seemed like there was there was nothing standing out that was like, oh, this is the solution you should use. I feel like I could use a number of solutions and they'd all be fine. But you know, it's, for me, it was ease of use and and uh, at this point, a low learning curve. Right. So when it came to picking Django in the end, did you end up using some of uh, its built-in things like the Django admin? Yeah. So um, I do use the Django ad- admin. Um, I you know I modify it as I go, but uh, it's sort of like an easy freebie, right? Like it's it's not perfect by any means, but you know not having to do any of that and just have access to the data um, on a backend like that is is pretty. I think it's pretty powerful. So yeah, I think it's a great thing. I mean, I don't have that much firsthand experience with Django itself, but you know when you have to sit there and create a custom admin for yourself as just like the developer of the project you know, that's time taken away from writing features for your app, or it's even worse if you just have to go in there and just start like, you know, writing these scripts to do various SQL things by hand. Like, yeah, just having that admin there to use right off the bat, pretty nice. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I mean, 
it's it's just it, it, like you said, it's just way too easy, right? Like you just have it; it's all set for you. Um, you can modify it as much as you want. So if you want to spend time to make it like exactly what you need, you can you actually can do that. But for a for a framework to just kind of provide that, I just just like yeah, this is this is great. Right? Do you use some other features of Django as well, like Django apps to split up your app or no? Um, yeah, no, definitely. Like so, I mean. The, the community in Django is great. Um, there, there's so many sort of extensions that you can throw into the thing that there's almost little coding. That's basically what Python is, right? There's so there's so much little coding that you're actually doing on your end. You're really connecting libraries and then adding the, the language or the, the logic in between those libraries to do what you need it to do. I feel like Django is very similar and has taken that um, sort of theory and, and methodology and run with it. And so like now, it's like I don't have to worry about permissions because I can handle permissions either through the Django system if that's not powerful enough. There's things like Django Guardian, which you know allow you to do a much more granular control of the data inside of the system, so that only specific users can get specific data in the system. So there's just like there's just so many things that you can use to to help you kind of along your way that you don't have to sort of recreate yourself. Right now, as for something like Django Guardian, are you using that in your project or no? Okay. Maybe you can rattle off a couple of other packages that you might use that uh, were useful for developing this type of project. Sure. Um, um, Guardian is a big one. And then uh, so naturally, uh, Django REST Framework is the other big piece that I'm using. Um, and that really provides, uh, I'm sure your your audience is probably pretty familiar with this, but um, the DRS Django REST Framework is uh, essentially turns Django from the sort of static, static HTML um, to a much more REST API based, right? So um, the endpoints are, you can create endpoints and then those endpoints will deliver JSON data and and then you can have a, you know, a front-end app to sort of deal with those things. So um, that's that's the way that we're building out the password spaces with DRS as well. So those are probably the two major components that I'm using. Yeah, no, it's kind of funny when it comes down to Django REST framework. Like I've spoken with a number of people now on the podcast who are who are using it, and pretty much everyone who decided they're going to build an API backend decided to choose that one. You know, assuming they're not going to use like GraphQL. Did you find that it was just like a no-brainer decision to use it too? I feel like a lot of people sort of come to the same realization that it's like, hey, this this one sort of app or you know this this one library has all the functionality that you need, and that's just what you know Django REST framework is. Uh, it provides so much right out of the box, and it's super easy to set up. Right. That kind of follows uh, Django's philosophy of batteries included. Exactly. And then, and then the dry principle, right? Uh, do not repeat yourself. It's, it follows sort of the whole the whole sort of philosophy across Django. And it, it fits in so, so well. It's almost like, did you guys actually develop this? But I don't think they did, right? I think it's the third party that, that, that maintains it. So, But, uh, but they, they sort of adhere to that philosophy. So it's great. Right. Now, for the API backend, do you have this as one monolithic app, or do you have it broken up into a couple of different services? Um, yeah, so mostly it's a, it's a monolithic app. Um, the, the components of storing passwords and the service that we're, we're providing, um, it just doesn't really require a, a bunch of microservices. Um, maybe as you know the app grows and the user base grows, we could, we could sort of think about sort of doing that. But at this point, at this stage, it just didn't make sense to us to do to do anything but a monolithic app. That being said, um, we did need a way to store um, the cryptographic keys that we're using to encrypt everything that goes into the database. So you don't want to do that in a, a database like uh, like Postgres, like we're using. Um, it's just sort of like that form. You need to really sort of you need to use hardware um, HSMs are basically hardware security modules. It's essentially a database just all 
these in there is essentially what we're using it for. So there's basically this microservice that's just handling the key storage and then the rest of the app is stored in one central place. Yeah, I don't know much about you know that low level encryption, but I'm happy to hear that it's not just sitting there in plain text, like in a public S3 bucket. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, that way, like, do we how how robust do we want to make this? And I was just like, um, yeah, we're not gonna do we're not gonna just throw the database. That's not that's not a good idea. Um, yeah, found found this one. Um, it's actually all pre-built. It's called Vault um, from HashiCorp. And it uh, it handles everything. It's got a REST API to, to do all the storage, so it's actually pretty easy to set up. Awesome. So I guess on your end, you just built a tiny little Django service to communicate to that API and call it a day, basically? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. So the Django app handles all of the authentication from the user standpoint, and then you know it will make calls to whatever it needs to, and then grant you access to, to all of the information. Yeah. Okay. So if you had to guess here, or maybe you know off the top of your head, uh, roughly, how big is this app on the back end in terms of maybe lines of code or like models that you use just to get some scope of what the size of this is? Yeah, um, it's actually quite small. Um, the back end is only maybe a thousand, maybe two thousand lines of code. Like I said, the the, the models that we're using it's maybe a half a dozen to a dozen models, um, depending on if you want to count the the metric models that we're you know capturing. But yeah, for for the most part, it's there's not much to uh, password storage, right? It's it's really just the the stored item and then a couple of other ancillary tables that help sort of, you know, do some data minimization, right? So I'm not having to store things multiple times on that. So there's a couple of other problems with that and then the user tables. That's really what it comes down to. So it's pretty simple to do. Right. So, I mean, I didn't go to your site before this call, but is this then a free app that people can use? Like there's no payments uh, set up on this? Um, so right now, I, we're, we're sort of discussing the business model of, of the app right now. I, I think we're gonna we're leaning towards sort of a pay model where it will be like a dollar or two a month um, to just kind of use that, and that would just cover all of the server costs and everything um, for us to, to do it. I, I don't think we can. I don't think there's a way for us to make it free without it. Without I, I guess part of me is like, so sure we make it free, but then you're basically I'm selling your information. Right. That's that's essentially the, the the business model of software these days is either you pay for the software and sometimes they sell your information or you don't pay for the software and they sell your information. I have over the, I've, I've come to the realization that I don't like the sell your information model in software, which is probably like bad on me, but because um, uh, everywhere it's happening and it seems like it's just happening more and more. But I, I don't know, like just philosophically for me, I, I don't like that idea. I don't like the idea that you know, the big tech companies just have everything and all the information on us. So I was just like, you know, I'm going to stand by my principles and I'm going to charge a couple of dollars for this and uh, and not sell your information. I think, I think that's the model we're going to take with it. Right. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of that model, too. It's like this is going to be weird because we're talking about things that just happened now, but this episode might not air for a couple of months. But are you familiar with that Hey.com service that just got released? It's the email one from the same makers of Basecamp. I don't think I am. Yeah, they're not a sponsor or anything. I'm not trying to plug them, but it was interesting because it's very related to this conversation because, yeah, it's like, you know, you can get an at hey.com email address through them and it costs, I think it was like 99 a year. But the alternative is like, they're not just going to like mine your data and serve ads and, you know, they're not Google basically. Right. Yes. I mean, I feel like, you know, I know that we sort of got connected through Reddit and, and the post you had made there. And I was reading something about how, uh, it was like, you know, the millionth question, the same question that everybody asked, and it was the, should I run my own mail server? And I was just like, oh, man, 
should I run my own mail server? Like, is that, is that crazy in this day and age? But, um, but yeah, I feel like that's like the, the, the path. I feel like the pendulum is swinging back a little bit from everybody being like, hey, let's just give our information away because it doesn't really mean anything. Uh, I think people are starting to kind of realize like, hey, maybe it does kind of mean something. Um, and maybe we should think about it a little bit more. Um, you're seeing that with legislation come out. You're kind of, I think you're, maybe you're seeing that with at least the people that I've been interacting with. I'm seeing that with their sort of, um, you know, idea and thoughts on what their data means. Yeah, for sure. So swinging back to your app here, you know, we kind of talked about the back end, but we didn't really talk too much about the front end. Uh, which JavaScript library do you use for that? React is what we're using. Okay. And also, do you want to go into your decision for splitting up like that with an API backend with a you know JavaScript frontend? Was it mainly because you knew that you're going to have like native mobile apps in the future? Yeah, um, I mean, it was really the the cross-platform nature of the system, right? So you want to be able to have your passwords at your laptop, at your desktop, on your phone, on your you know tablet, whatever it is. So um, just with the nature of humans having multiple devices and multiple types of devices, it just made sense to to make this off the bat a, a app that can, you know, provide those different systems with, you know, the same information as part of your account. The architecture of a REST API and then, you know, a bunch of apps that sit on these other platforms that made the most sense. Yeah, totally makes sense for sure. And someone like me too, like I use a command line tool to manage my passwords called Pass. Mm -hmm. And I like the idea of just to be able to type in site slash and then whatever site that I want. And then it's like, boom, it copies my password to the clipboard for 30 seconds. Like, yeah, having a REST API is awesome because like in the future, if your users ask for it, you know, maybe you can have a CLI tool at some point. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, I'm happy to, I love CLI tools, so I might just even build that. And no, I didn't even think about it until you said it. So um, I, uh, I, I'm all for it, right? And that's, that's part of the, the reason, again, like kind of going back to the community of this thing and like I want this to be sort of community driven. Like we want to we want to get this thing built and then sent out and then pushed out and then really just kind of collect as much feedback as we can from the people who are using it and and build it to what the needs are. Yeah, very cool. So speaking about community, do you plan to make this app open source at some point or now? So we've been, we've been talking about that. We haven't made any decision yet, but I think um, I'm leaning toward making it open source. Um, one the the technology, like I said, it's it's pretty repeatable. Um, anybody who's got a, you know a, a decent computer science background and knows a little bit about encryption or is willing to learn about it, it you, you could you could do this pretty easily. So um, I, I don't have any problem with anybody else using it. I think it, I think it actually would make the the program better because then we'd be able to incorporate changes that people want to make themselves, um, and we wouldn't have to focus on on those particular changes. But if if people want to sort of modify it and redeploy it, I think that's great. So. Um, I, I think we will open sourcing the project. Very cool. Yeah, I like that idea because even from like an end user point of view, just to be able to see the source code of what's running is nice from a security point of view. I know technically maybe, you know, you can kind of, and this is like a shady thing to do, but it's like you can make your app open source, but you're not really running that code in production. I mean, people have to take like a leap of faith that you are, but, you know, at least putting the code out there is, is nice. Right. No, I, absolutely. And yeah, I, I feel like, you know, hopefully, hopefully not a lot of people are doing that, but um, yeah, I, I get, I get, I get the sentiment, and that's again like ties back to sort of the philosophy of what I'm trying to do, and and make this like, hey, you know, we're not privacy, we're not data focused, we're not trying to sell your data. Um, I want to be more privacy focused and and think about how we can sort of, you know, be good shepherds of data, be good shepherds of your data, and then I think part of that, like you said, is showing you kind of. 
Yeah, no, I, I think I think transparency is, is key. Uh, again, too many organizations, right, are so opaque that you have no idea what's happening, and then all of a sudden, you know, people are dealing with you know fraud and and all this sort of identity theft and all that. So. Um, yeah, I feel like just transparency is sort of like one of our guiding principles. Right. Yeah, you can never go wrong with that. Okay, so switching gears here back to your front end, you know, you mentioned you are using React. Uh, did you build those native mobile apps like side by side with the web UI all at the same time? Um, sort of. We I, I needed to kind of build out the back end and, um, and just make sure we weren't going to change too many things before we started the front end. And so once that got solidified, uh, we started chopping up the work between the two of us. Um, and uh, my partner Brandon started working on the front end um, for for the different for the different UIs. Right. So at this point, you have the React JavaScript going, but then you also do have like a an iOS app and an Android app as well. Yeah, those are, those are the three platforms we're starting with, um, and we're actually focusing on iOS and Android first. I think um, we we believe that mobile first probably makes the most sense in this day and age, um, and just getting out those quicker than than the laptops or, or the, I should say, the, the, you know, the regular PCs. And uh, so that was just sort of like the design decision we made up front was just to kind of build those out first. But yeah, there'll be the React um, the React UI and then the native, or I shouldn't say native, but the, the two um, mobile uh, platforms as well. Okay, as for managing the JavaScript front end, do you use something like Webpack or something else maybe? Yeah, so we'll be using Webpack um, for the system. Okay. And then I guess for that, you would just be using Webpack to bundle up all of your CSS and JavaScript? That's correct, yeah. Okay, cool. So you did mention earlier that you are using Postgres. Do you want to get into maybe the rest of your tech stack? Like are you using Celery and Redis or maybe even Docker in development and production, things like that? Um, so we're actually deploying through Heroku, um, which takes care of most of that stuff. So I haven't had to sort of develop any of the other sort of CICD components to stuff. Um, we're using GitHub. And from GitHub, Heroku just sucks it in, and they they don't use Docker; they use their own sort of flavor of container, which I think is called Dynos. They call them, and so in a sense, we're using containers, but I'm indirectly using them. I set them up, and then Heroku sort of takes care of everything else. Okay, and then what about development side? Then are you just manually installing, you know, Python, a virtual environment, Postgres, and all that on your dev box? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so the dev boxes are uh, just local hosting everything, and then once um, once things are tested out and built properly, they get pushed up into Git, uh, GitHub, excuse me, and then GitHub runs a couple of tests there uh, just to make sure everything is correct. Uh, and then once those pass, it gets pushed into Heroku, and then Heroku builds everything, and we're deployed. Nice. Yeah, that is a pretty uh, speedy process. Always good to use Heroku when you want to get stuff done fast, uh, as long as you don't mind paying the extra money, I suppose. Yeah, so that's something like we'll, we'll think about it. Um, the, like the free tier of Heroku is, I mean, I don't, I don't see why you wouldn't start there ever. It's just dirt simple to set up and it's available. Uh, you know, it's obviously not, not the best. It's not doesn't have the greatest response times and all that, but you know, in a development environment, I think it makes a lot of sense. And then bolting on or adding on the service levels that they have is fine up until a point. I think it gets, it starts to get pretty expensive. And I haven't done a, a good comparison across that to something like, uh, you know, AWS's Lambda or um, even Google's GSTP's version of that. Um, I know those can get expensive too at certain usage levels. I just don't know exactly where they cross yet. So, you know, if, if we do see sort of prices starting, costs, I should say, starting to increase a lot, 
then we'll probably figure out like, okay, maybe we need to switch our deployment model. Right. So right now then, are you using the free plan for Postgres as well? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So earlier I mentioned, you know, maybe using something like Celery and Redis as well. Are those just not being used at all in this project? Okay. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, I mean, one of the textbook cases for using like a background worker would be to send emails out. Is email even something that is included in your app? Like if you sign up and register an account, I would imagine like at least for like a password reset, you'd have to send some email or no? Yeah. So I guess then you just send those emails out straight up, like in the request response cycle, like when the user fills out the form, the email is like getting sent in that cycle or no? Uh, yeah, so that's correct, right? So the, the, the app is um, going to send those emails out to, to so like when you register, right? So when you register, you'll go through that process, and then you'll have to activate your account. Like it's a basic registration process, right? So an email goes back to you. Um, so we're we're doing that and capturing that um, and using SendGrid to do that. But yeah, not no service or system like is doing that locally or I should say locally, but internally, I guess. Okay. Now as for Heroku. Do you want to maybe rattle off a couple of different add-ons that you might be using that we didn't cover so far? Like we know we're using the Postgres one, maybe the SendGrid one as well. Like any other ones? Yeah. So, so those two, they've got I forget the name of their their logging one that they have. That one is basically the app monitoring um, capability that comes with it. So, um, and I believe that's everything. Yeah, I think that's all of them. Okay. And then for those as well, that's also on the free tier. Um, so you have to put in your credit card one I believe um, but you can use it for free and so it's got like it's got some yeah it's got some minimal functionality but uh, it's still like you know it still tells you the things that you need to know it's the most important information like is, is it up uh, is it running properly kind of things and then as you pay I think it'll get more into like the load balancing and automated sort of triggers for lower I should say the thresholds for, for uh, scaling up if you need to with the app Right, but do you still get notified for free then if something goes wrong in the app and you want to see like a stack trace? Do you have some web UI or an email alert that gets sent to you so you can see things like that? Yeah, so there will be a log output that you can see so that you can you know ver- or determine like what's going wrong with the app, yeah. So just uh, going back to your deploy process, a while back you sort of hinted at how you do it, but do you want to break it down step by step just so we have like a clear you know, straight shot of how this actually happens, like all the way from developing a new feature in development to this thing being up and running live on the site. Yes. So we, uh, so when we, you know, take a, a feature off of our sort of, you know, to-do list, we'll build that in and um, we'll go ahead and, and after all the development testing has been done, we'll go ahead and, and deploy that to, or I should say, push that up into GitHub. GitHub handles it and then pushes uh, Heroku sucks in. Uh, there's a, a trigger, I don't know exactly which way it goes. I'm sure GitHub triggers Heroku um, in terms of their backends. But basically, once the new deployment goes up and it checks out, um, Heroku then will pull the new code base. It will sort of do its recompile, its uh, sort of reinstallation process, I guess. Um, the container gets rebuilt with all of the pieces, and uh, and then it gets deployed. That's pretty much it. It's pretty, pretty simple. What would you say if you had to estimate here, like, What's the end-to-end time from that Git push to it being live on the site? Man, like 30 seconds, maybe a minute. And that includes all sorts of stuff, like maybe needing to pip install your dependencies and whatever else Heroku is going to do for you. Right, right. So so with Heroku, you give it your runtime environment. So what version of Python you're using, what uh, versions of, of Gunicorn that you're using, and 
and then it has it handles sort of um, the proxying, the reverse proxying piece of it, so you don't have to tell it nginx or anything like or nginx rather. Um, what you're doing, um, it does that part of it, but you tell it sort of what kind of corn version you're using, you tell it uh, what version of Python you're using, and then you give it a requirements text file, and it will basically just run through that whole PIP process of installing all that stuff. Um, and again, if anything fails, it lets you know, and then you can go in and fix that stuff. But yeah, assuming everything goes correctly, all that is all that's done, installed, and deployed in the container, and then running. And yeah, I would say it's 30 seconds to a minute, so it's pretty fast. Right, and during that whole time, it's not like your site is down, right? It's only down for that brief moment of time where it needs to restart things, I guess? Exactly, yeah, the crossover. Um, basically, the shutting down of the old app happens right at the end, right? So it's, it's not like you're, it's not when you, uh, you know, deploy into GitHub and then it, and then Heroku find, or gets triggered and finds the new code. It's not stopping your 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 app, and then you know doing all those steps for thirty for thirty seconds to a minute. It's your app is still running. It's doing those things, and then once it's ready to um, you know get go live, I guess, and it will then shut down the old one and then start up the new one. So that that time is I don't even, I don't even know if it's calculable. Um, it's I can't, I can't imagine it's very long. Okay, so now one common thing I've heard from folks who are using Heroku is they were using the white noise library in their Django apps. Are you using that too or no? Um, I'm not using it right now, um, but I maybe I have to kind of figure out if we need to. Okay, so now maybe we can focus a little bit more on disaster recovery or unexpected events. Uh, do you do anything special to keep your database backed up? Um, yeah, so currently right now we're still development so I haven't set up any of the disaster recovery stuff but the plans right now are to definitely back up the database just kind of so we can make sure that there's another copy of it somewhere in case something like dramatic happened um, I don't know what that dramatic occurrence is but um, I guess better safe than sorry so we're, we're backing that up and then we're also backing up um, the instance of vault so all of the all of the keys will be saved or are backed up and encrypted and all of that stuff, and then uh, the database as well is all backed up and encrypted, and then you know GitHub is GitHub. I don't think we have to back up GitHub, so we have the code up there. Right. So when it comes to that vault backup, do you just put them somewhere in like an S3 bucket, or do you just rip those down to a local machine? So vault right now is running in uh, uh, DigitalOcean. Um, I always, I, for some reason, I always want to say Dropbox, but it's DigitalOcean. <laughs> Um, and this must be the droplet in DigitalOcean is where my brain goes. Um, but yeah, so right now it's sitting in, in a droplet on DigitalOcean, and then we have an image saved inside of DigitalOcean. Okay, so on that on that regard, you're using their built-in backup thing. That's like I guess it runs what is it once a week maybe, and it just makes a backup image. Yeah, exactly. Cool. So what's uh, specs around that DigitalOcean box? Like, is that the five dollar a month plan or something else? Yeah. So so right now. I, Starting off, we're starting off really small. Um, the benefit to all of these technologies is that scaling up is—I mean, scaling up or down—is you know, there's no actual sort of development or deployment costs associated with that. So what I mean by that is like, if at some point all of a sudden that you know, five-dollar box of five twelve and one processor or whatever it is um, is not enough, we can just go ahead and kick it up to the second tier um, in in uh, DigitalOcean, and there's no. Right. There's no there's no downtime with that. It just happens. Um, and it's the same thing with Heroku. As we need to, if we need more processing power and more RAM, um, you know, pointed at the app, then we just do that. And then 
then turn it on. And again, there's it's that simple redeploy process and it's just done, right? So this, the ease of use with all of those platforms is its ability to scale with like very minimal interruption. Yeah, DigitalOcean is awesome in that regard, right? You can just power down the machine, pick the new specs that you want, and about a minute later, you have the new specs. So there is a little bit of downtime, but I mean, there are ways to avoid that if you really wanted to. Like maybe you spin up the new server how you want it, and then you just update your DNS records to point to the new one. And then in like two days or something, you just spin down the old one. Like assuming you don't need to worry about, you know, moving data between the two, that, that's one way to do it. Yeah, no, and that's that's exactly how we have it set up is that, um, and you know, there should never be data that has to tra traverse across uh, from one to the other. It's, that stuff isn't um, isn't changing frequently. So assuming there isn't a lot of, you know, new registration that happens during that time period, then yeah, everything should be pretty much the same. Right. So c going back to that DigitalOcean server, did you set that up by hand then? Like you just logged into the server and then just started running commands to get Vault and all that installed? Or is there like a one-click installer for that? Um, you know, I didn't really look into to see if there was a one-click install for it. Um, but you know, it was it was a few command lines to get everything running. Um, and so I, I mean, I'm pretty familiar with, with Linux and um, and got been getting super familiar with Vault. So uh, that install was pretty much seamless. It was just you know, here's the package and install it. Um, so so yeah, it was just sort of by hand. Um, nothing was was really crazy about it. And then the, you know, the backup processing was handled all by DigitalOcean. So, yeah, pretty, pretty easy. Right. As for the distro that you picked, did you go with Ubuntu, Debian, or something else? Um, yeah, I'm an Ubuntu person. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if there's any other reason. I just use, use Ubuntu for years. So. Right. It's one of those things where using it forever hasn't bit you yet, so why bother switching? Yeah, exactly. And it's like, it, it's it's funny, like, I, I, was, I always sort of watched the sort of distro wars happen. Um, I never really participated in them, but um, it was more of a spectator sport, I guess, for me. Yeah, it was, it was really just like, hey, which one's which one gets me to, to the endpoint with the easiest and, and quickest way, I guess maybe the, maybe the better way to say it uh, possible, right? So, um, and, you know, back in the day, I was using Gentoo, and that was, you know, nonsensical. I laugh at myself now, um, watching things compile for no real reason. <laughs> But but yeah, it's just like now nah, it's just like Ubuntu is super easy. It has all the security controls you need to do. You need to turn them on. But other than that, yeah, it's it's pretty simple. Yeah, Gen two. That is a term I haven't heard in a while. I remember way back in like <laughs> the early two thousands, my first experience with Linux was uh, going on a team viewer session with my friend who was a sysadmin at the time, and he kind of just walked me through installing Gen two from scratch, and that was like. 7 p.m. to like 11.30 p.m. And we finally got it all up and running. It was like an entire night. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> That's like that. I, I had this, we're probably on the same night. Probably. We were doing the same thing. Like, <laughs> um, not only are our names the same, our history is parallel as well. So, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, sometime in the early 2000s, I was doing the same thing with a friend of mine who was walking me through it. I'm just like, what is happening? <laughs> you know, through a good most of it, but but I will say that that was like the most stable machine I ever ran. The hardware died on that machine before anything in that operating system failed. Yeah, it's crazy. And then you you go from that time to now, and it's like hit a couple of drop down boxes on a site, and like literally like forty five seconds later, you have an Ubuntu server or you know other distros as well, just ready to go. Totally, it's like it's it's insane, right? 
right? So it's just like going from it was, it's good that I feel like I went through that, and maybe you feel the same way because like I learned a crap load about stuff, like you know just how package managers work and and just like the, the innards of Linux and how it functions, like all this stuff. Like I just kind of like figured out by doing by messing around with, with you know a system like Gentoo. So now when I come to something like Ubuntu, it's just like oh man, like so much is this is just easy. This is a cakewalk. Like I don't have to do anything. Um, and, and you know the community on Ubuntu is great. So so if you do have any questions, you just gotta you know throw it into your search and and out pops you know a hundred answers to fix your problem. Right. Yeah, we were building up some valuable life skills. Like if I'm ever trapped on an island right now, I can totally partition a drive on Linux without having to look things up. <laughs> exactly. Very very important skills to have. <laughs> Totally. Now, speaking of skills, maybe, do you want to go over like some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this project? Um, yeah, sure. Oh, let me think about this. Um, so I think some of the, the, the more complicated pieces was like trying to figure out, so this is probably a little esoteric and, and deals primarily with, you know, storing encrypted information um, in a distributed way, right? That's I, I thought I thought when I first started this out, I was thinking that oh, this is not going to be very hard, right? I know I know all about encryption. I have you have public and private keys. You have to you know keep your private key obviously pretty secure and all that, and that's easy. And I was like, wait a minute, like no, I have to have this private key available to people. And so trying to figure that piece out was was pretty interesting. Um, and I wasn't exactly sure how I was going to do it because there are you know these so I mentioned these HSMs, these hardware security modules out there, um, but they're like crazy expensive, right? There's like enterprise level HSMs that exist that are like, you know, 50 grand or whatever. And we're just not at the level that we're ready to use something like that. So um, I was trying to figure out like, how am I going to do this? And, um, you know, after running through, um, you know, Stack Exchange and, and seeing the, oh, just like salt it and then hash the, the private key and I'm just like what? like this is crazy um, and, and then I and then I that's when I came across Vault um, which is this open source project um, that also has sort of paid licenses associated with it as well but you all the functionality that I needed was in the open source version the free version and that was actually like I'm I'm so glad that that exists because I was I'm not really sure how we would have done it otherwise. Um, but it's a great way to securely store information, um, and that's anything from API keys to, you know, um, RSA keys, like we're, like we're storing. But it's it's a program it's a programmer it's a programmer friendly uh, system to be able to store and encrypt information that you don't want to just put into your app, right? So like your any API keys that you're using if you're doing like SendGrid, right, for example, that's got an API key. You don't really want to put that in your app. Then it's sitting in your code base, and if somebody gets access to the code base, and they can kind of see it, and then they can use that to access your account and your other platforms. So now I can throw that API key into uh, Vault, and Vault will store it, uh, and then I can just retrieve it when I need it, when I need it. So that was a really great system and a really great thing that I figured out. Um, I'm glad that I did because, like I said, I wasn't really sure how I was going to kind of handle that. Yeah, that, that is a great tip. Yeah, that's probably like the biggest one that, that like through this project alone that I figured out that was like, man, I'm glad this technology exists. <laughs> but yeah, other than that, it was it was more like uh, digging through and just kind of really figuring out how the authentication system works in Django and how to get that to kind of do the things that you need it to do. Um, 
to one of the one of the I guess I would say probably obvious things at this point is that Django's user restrictions are pretty loose, right? So a user has access, any user in a Django app default from default setting has access to all of the database. And you can limit that somewhat to groups and permissions, um, but that's only at a table level, right? So you can't, you have specific rows that you want to limit inside of that table. You, you can't use the default Django configuration, right? You have to go through and use something like a Guardian. Um, so that would probably be the other tip that I would kind of suggest is that, you know, if you, if you really need to protect data, um, or if there's really some, some reason to segment data, like from, uh, from a perspective of, you know, whether it's, you know, personal information or, or, you know, credentials or anything like that, um, you really need to kind of figure out how you're going to do that and what systems you're going to use to do that. And so I think Guardian, Guardian and Postgres combination is, is pretty great because Postgres is pretty good on security out of the box. And then Guardian helps you sort of get Django to that place where, hey, this user only has access to these data pieces. So I would say those are the two big, the two big pieces that I think I picked up from this. Yeah, those are very good tips. And I'm glad you brought that up about Vault because I wasn't really like 100% on what you were using it for. But now it's very clear that you're using this as like an alternative to something like having a .env file sitting in plain text on disk and just loading that into your app. Or I guess with the, in the Heroku case, it would be like using their CLI tool to add these environment variables. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you don't, like I said, you don't, you never want to do that. I mean, you don't want to do that in a system that you own, let alone a system that you don't own, right? So, and the way that sort of cloud works, I, I mean, obviously nobody has, or nobody's supposed to have access to your, you know, your instances if they're running, but you know, that's what they're saying. And you don't, you can't, you have no way to verify that that's actually true. Um, you have no idea what testing they actually did. So setting up systems like these are, are really good ways to kind of ensure that you know the encryption and the security is there um, from from the data perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So Nick, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. I really appreciate the time. Um, I, I always love talking to another Nick. Uh, it just feels good. Um, and no, thanks for letting me sort of spouse about our stack and talking about the project. Yeah, no problem. And it's not just another Nick. It's another Nick, like another Gen 2 Nick. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Yeah, there's, there's many layers here for sure. <laughs> right. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really do too much of the social media, um, which is maybe, maybe bad on me. Um, I, I, I I try to do it and then never can do it, but I never never end up following through with it. But um, our website for sure is is passwordspace.com. Uh, it's all uh, I guess it's two words, but there's no hyphen or anything in between. It's just password and space um, dot com. So yeah, that's um, that's where we're at. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.